0: Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, praise team. I tell you, uh, as much as I loved Carl last week, uh, he's got nothing on you guys. So I uh, appreciate that this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Uh, today we're beginning the series, a four-part series, as we make our way into, the East, into Easter. Famous last words. Rock and roll drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987 as he was being prepped for surgery a nurse asked him is there anything you can't take rich reply yeah country music <laughs> those were his last words Johnny Ace a rhythm and blues singer died in 1954 while playing with a pistol during a break in his concert set his last words were I'll show you that it won't shoot John Wayne died at age 72 in Los Angeles. Just before he died, he turned to his wife and said, Of course, I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. Elizabeth I, Queen of England, died in 1603. Her last words were, All my possessions for a moment of time. John Newton, preacher and songwriter of amazing grace, his last words, I am in the land of the dying, and I'm soon going to the land of the living. You know, when you think about it, a person's last words reveal much about how they lived. And this morning, what I want to do is I want us to look at the last words of Jesus' admirers. Now, now, of course, it's just before Jesus dies on the cross, there were those who encountered him, those he was around, those that he was actually teaching, uh, those who were gathered around the cross. And, and so what I'm doing is I'm basically using the last words of those admirers before his own death. And so that's what we'll be looking. So today we're going to look at selected passages. You're going to turn in your Bibles to several places this morning. We're going to look at a lot of verses. And the reason is I want to show you a pattern that we see of those that Jesus encountered just before his own death. So look at the introduction on your outline. In the, gospels, in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, we read that he had many accusers as well as admirers. Next week, we're going to look at the accusers. Today, we're looking at the admirers. Many totally misunderstood Jesus' mission and purpose and even who he was including many of his admirers, even up to the last events and last words just before the cross. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you through a journey of those in in which Jesus encountered uh, those last events, those last words, those last times before the cross. And so the first one we're going to see, the famous last words of the crowd, of the crowd. Many scholars, now this may surprise you, but many scholars believe that Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem was not actually on what we call Palm Sunday, but actually on Monday. Church tradition is the one that basically says that happened on Sunday, and they back that up to Sunday. But many people believe that Monday was the actual day of him coming into Jerusalem. And that's the part we're going to read this morning. Now, Monday is also more aligned with the Passover paralleling, paralleling with the sacrifice of Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand, and the historical reference will help you to see this. On Monday before the cross, on what they call Nisan nice ten, that's the month and the day, the Passover lamb was to be selected. So if you're in the process of the Passover and you were celebrating the Passover, on that week, that Monday, is when you would actually choose the lamb that would be sacrificed. And then on Friday, which is nice and 14, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Now think about that. As Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on what church tradition calls Palm Sunday, which many people believe it's Monday, as he comes in, that is a picture of the sacrifice that has been chosen. And that's what we find there. So look at Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at how this went down, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, "The Lord has need of them, and immediately He will send them." All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and of course, we're getting ready to read what Zechariah says, 500 years earlier. Here's what it says, verse five, "Tell the daughter of Zion, or the daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on the donkey, a colt, a fall of a donkey." And, of course, we know the donkey is a, the beast of, the bur, of burden. And verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They bought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The scene that you see here is a scene of a conquering king. So really what's being played out here would be what many nations would have seen. So if a king goes off and conquers a nation or conquers a people, he would come back literally riding on a white horse or some type of horse, I should say, come back and and there would be this celebration of the victory. Well, of course, this looks a little different because he's not on a horse, not that of a victor, but he's on a donkey. Now it says in verse 8, a very great multitude... Came together. Now, here's what's interesting about what's going on. The week of Passover, it is estimated by Jewish historians that there could have been as many many as two million people in Jerusalem at this time. That's a lot of people. Especially if you were to go back and see probably how small Jerusalem was at that time, you would say, Where do you put two million people? And so there are literally people on top of people. And they were gathered there and they began to come together. They were there for the Passover. And it says in verse 8, A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Now when they did this, that, that spreading their clothes, it's a picture of respect. It's a picture of honor and submission. It's literally the idea that they are willing to give anything they need to give for a particular cause. And so that's the picture that you see happening there. That's the reason they spread their clothes. Others cut down branches from the trees. The, the gospel writer John says it was palm trees. Which is a symbolism of joy and salvation. And it says, and they spread them on the road. Verse 9. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, it's interesting that this is the the phraseology in which they use here. Hosanna means literally, save us now, Savior. Save us now. The son of David, David is messianic. It's the whole reference of the Messiah coming and delivering God's people. And so that's what they're singing out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. In the highest, speaking of Savior. Now, here's what you need to understand. The multitude really didn't understand what they were saying. They, they, they could not comprehend. They, they really didn't know who Jesus was. They really didn't know his mission. They really didn't know his purpose. And they're gathered there, and there was all this talk and all this celebration as he comes in. The Bible says in verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. That means they were inspired. They, they were passionate, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the people, getting back to the crowd. The crowd wanted a savior as a conquering king. Here's what's interesting. Here's what they did to Jesus. They literally took what they were seeing and they created Jesus in their own image. They they, they wanted to see him in a particular light. They wanted him to do something. Now, they thought a revolution was about to take place. The crowd wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power to overthrow Rome and establish a kingdom where God's chosen people would have special favor. But Jesus did not come to conquer Rome. Here's what he did. But to come to conquer sin and death. He did not come to make war with Rome, but to make peace with God for men. Now, think of this. They literally created Jesus in their own image. And when he did not meet their expectations, guess what's going to happen days later? They're going to turn on him. They're going to turn on him. The cries of celebration and adoration will turn to crucify him just days later. The the words that they said were right, but their hearts were far from the intentions of God. They wanted their selfish desires met. They wanted a God that would give them success, wealth, health, happiness, and other, other worldly endeavors. They did not want their sin revealed and confronted, nor did they want a Savior who would say something like, take up your cross and follow me. Their perspective was totally materialistic and self-centered. They were only interested in the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of heaven. They totally misunderstood Jesus. They totally misunderstood his purpose, his mission, what all this was really about. Here it is. The bottom line was this when it came to the crowds, they could not see beyond themselves, and therefore the Jesus they created was there to serve them. They were admirers and not followers. They created Jesus in the image they desired. Listen, people today do the same with their expect, when their expectations are not met. Here's, here's what they say. Why did God allow this? Why did God not heal? What, what, I don't understand. I look at what I'm going through, and I, I don't understand. And here's what they're saying. They're saying, basically, I had certain expectations of what God was going to do in my life. And, and I can't understand. I've been praying for this thing for a really long time. I, I just don't get it. And guess what many do? They turned their back on them. You know, if you, if you go around and you start talking to people about their faith, do you know that many times you'll find that there were people who had some faith who basically at some point God did not meet their expectations and they turned their back on him? And I don't mean to be judgmental. And I understand pain and I understand when you feel like God's not hearing you. and you feel. But here's what we need to understand. We can't create Jesus. We can't create God in our own image. God is God. Jesus is who he says he was. He came with a specific purpose and a mission. You see, here's here's what we miss so many times. We're so caught up in Jesus building the kingdom right here and what we desire and what we want, we'll create him in a certain way and then we'll have expectations of what he needs to do in our lives. Y'all, his whole purpose and mission was not about this world. You do understand that, right? His purpose and mission was to come to save you out of this world, to, to bring you to your, your heavenly Father. And, and so many people have misunderstood along the way. So many people turned, just like the crowd did. They had built it up in their minds what they thought Jesus were, what he was about. And really, when you really think about it, strip it all the way, they had expectations of what he needed to do for them. And you know what happened? They were let down, and not even days later, they turned on him. Y'all, there's still people today doing the same thing, turning on him. Next, the famous last words of the companions. And what, these are really the disciples. I had to have a sea world there, okay? You're going to see that. Them. <laughs> and so I'm calling them the companions. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a different set of stories here. Now, now think about this. You had the crowd. You understood possibly how they could have misdiagnosed or not seen Jesus and who he truly was. But surely those who spent much time with Jesus saw him for who he truly was. Certainly they saw his purpose and his mission. Surely they got it right. Well, the first two I want us to look at is James and John. How many of you know that James and John were disciples of Jesus? They were part of the inner circle. You know who the inner circle was? Peter, James, and John. We have two of the three right here. Now, in Mark chapter 10, I want you to look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, literally it could be the sons of thunder, came to Jesus saying, listen to this, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How many of you have ever had kids do that? I mean, this sounds like children here. And they're coming to Jesus. They're asking this question. The idea here is this. Here's what the idea is. The idea here is we will follow you if you could do this for us. Now, does this sound familiar? Sounds very American, doesn't it? It says in verse 36, And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do? And look at the next. For you. For you. What's he pointing out? This is about you. What was Jesus all about? The kingdom. Jesus over and over again said, It's not my will, but your will, Father. He, he, he gave of his life. He gave of himself. He totally divested himself into other people. And there's two who were in the inner circle who didn't see the example that Jesus was setting. They didn't really see who he was or what his mission was about. So they totally misunderstood and they come. And, they say, and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your glory. You know what they're asking? They were asking to be elevated to the highest ranks in the kingdom, to the places of honor. Pride, listen, is the defining sin of humanity and the source of all sin. Pride is self-serving and defines itself as self-love. These two, they were basically asking Jesus if following him had earthly benefits. If we follow you, what's in it for us? You know, a lot of people treat God that way today. What Jesus did, basically, is, say, well, if I do this, what's in it for me? And so it's not just the crowd who, who basically has certain expectations that they want God to do in their life. Even the inner circle, those who were closest to him said, well, you know, basically, what, what's in it for me? Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. We're able. How many of you have ever wanted something so bad that you just said, whatever it takes. And then you went after it and you started moving towards that. And you realized right away, oh, <laughs> I hate I asked for this. That's the scene you're seeing here. This response indicates that their request had no implications of meeting Jesus' agenda for the kingdom. Uh, Continue in verse 39. It says, so Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. You see, what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the cup, he talks about the baptism. He's talking about identification with suffering. You do understand that, right? How many of you today, sitting here today, says, I want to identify with suffering. Sign me up. We don't really want that, do we? They didn't even know what they were asking. I'm sure when Jesus started answering their question, they're looking at each other saying, what in the world is this all about? They didn't get it. But Jesus is talking about the suffering they would encounter later as his disciples. Here's what's interesting about this whole story. Who are the two people asking of this? James and John. Did you know that James will be the first of the 12 who will be killed for their faith? Isn't that ironic? Did did you know that John will die? Many people will will die in exile. And so in verse 40, he says this, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it's prepared. That means it's already out there. God's got a plan. We just need to go with the plan. When you think about it, they were literally asking Jesus. Think of this, y'all. They were literally asking to sit in the place of Jesus. Who's going to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Jesus is. What are they requesting? Did they sit there? Think of that, the irony of it all. You think you've ever met people who think that highly of themselves? Yeah, all around us. Jesus will be the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, many of us live as though we sit in a place of prominence as it relates to our own lives. But did you know if you give your life to Jesus Christ, do you know what He becomes? He becomes Lord. He becomes the caller of the shots. <laughs> He's the one that has the plan for you. He's the one that's calling you to, to take up your cross and follow Him. It's not you calling the shots. As you can imagine, the request of James and John didn't go so well with the other 10. Think about that. 12 of them are sitting there. Two of them come forward and say, hey, we want the key positions of leadership. You think the other 10 thought, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Give it to them. uh uh-uh. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You didn't. You know that those who were considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. He's basically saying you, you really don't enjoy living under the hierarchy of a kingdom the way it's prescribed here in what you're living. And, and the reason he knew that is because they wanted to revolt against that. They wanted a revolution against that you understand that right and basically saying why would you want to set that up over other people he's basically correcting their theology verse 43 it shall be yet it shall be among you but whoever desires to become great among you shall shall be your servant and whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to get but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and so what Jesus is trying to help them to understand is you're, you're totally missing it. You are totally missing it. This kingdom that you're talking about, that, that you have expectations of, that you're looking at, and you're wanting to set the hierarchy, you're totally missing it. It's not about you personally. Listen, if it is about you, here's what you need to understand. You're gonna serve all the others. It's a whole idea of serving. You see, they did not know their place, and they still did not know The purpose of Jesus' mission? Those who are closest to him. How about some others? Look on your outline. The famous last words, the companions. Not only do we see James and John, but also this guy named Thomas. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. What do you know about Thomas? What's his nickname that we call him? (coughs) Doubting Thomas. Okay? Uh, He was literally a twin. It's very interesting when you think about it. He was a twin. And, 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 of course, he, he was skeptical at times. He he didn't believe everything. He had to be shown certain things, and we see that in Scripture. But in John chapter 14, and many of you know that many pastors read this at memorial services. I want you to look at verse 1. Jesus is com- consoling or comforting his disciples. He's already told them about his impending death. He told them it's, it's, it's really going to be tough coming up. It's really going to be tough. But then he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You know what's interesting? He says, when I go to prepare a place for you, right there where the Father lives, that's where I'm going to build a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know, Making some pretty big assumptions there for these guys, isn't he? And then Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? You you see, the problem with the disciples is that they could not see past death. They couldn't see past death. It appeared their faith was limited by their limited understanding or their limited knowledge. Listen, when we have limited knowledge, do you know what has to take over at that point? Faith, faith has to take over at that point, and, and this was a st- these were steps that obviously they had not taken yet, and so Thomas was there. You see, Jesus in the in previous chapter in the previous chapter in other gospel accounts had already told them the way he was going, but they did not get it. Based on Thomas's question, the, then Jesus clarified his statement. For not only them, but for all. Look at what he says in verse six. He's, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is very clear about eternity and one's entrance into heaven, but it is amazing how people want to prescribe the terms for their salvation. Jesus alone reveals the terms for salvation. It's so ironic. You get out there and you talk to people and you hear people through the airwaves and what they're commenting about and, 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 and this whole idea of eternity and this whole idea of God and what he's got out there for us and all these things. And you hear all these people many times talk about them setting the terms. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? On how they're gonna to come to God. Did you know that nine, I think, I'm sorry, between eight and nine out of ten people who profess to know Christ, that they're trusting in some form of works to get them there. Did you you know what they're doing? They're setting the terms for their salvation. The terms for salvation have already been set by God through Jesus. He tells us exactly what it's gonna be. And, and even those closest to him were not getting it. And it's ironic how many times we still don't get it. Here's another one: the famous last words. Of Philip. Philip. Now, this is not Philip in the book of Acts. How many of you remember there was somebody named Philip in Acts and he went to Samaria and a great revival broke out? You remember that story? And then he was called away to go and witness to the eunuch where he led the eunuch to the Lord. That's not this Philip. This Philip is one of the 12 original disciples. Okay? But he had something to say in the same conversation. So look at John chapter 14 verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, from now on, you know, you know him, you've known him and have seen him. Now, this is Jesus talking. Here's what he's saying. He's meaning if they fully grasp who Jesus is, they will fully grasp who the Father is and who he is and the terms for salvation. Jesus is also saying that he is equal with the Father and full deity. Yet many do not believe this, but even Philip needed more evidence. Look at verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and, it's, uh, it, and it is sufficient for us. Show us more. We don't, we want to be able uh, here. He's basically saying, we really want to get our minds around this and our hearts around this. But, but Jesus, if you could just kind of just let the Father come down and talk with us. We'd appreciate that. He very well could have said this, Jesus, you and your words are not enough. Show us the Father and we'll believe. You know, there's a lot of people out there still that have that whole idea today. Show show me something. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? You hear the disappointment in Jesus? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The, the, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now here's what's so tough about what we're reading. Did you know this conversation happened just days before Jesus would encounter the cross. I mean, he's, he, we know from what we can determine by the Gospels, he's, these people have been, these 12 have been following around for over three years now. He's poured himself into them day in and day out. And they're still not getting it. Still not getting it. Do you know why they're not getting it? Because again, they made the kingdom about themselves. And what, they had, their had, what their expectations were and what they desired and what they wanted. They weren't too caught up in what Jesus was saying. They just wanted what they wanted. This kind of belief, listen, that, that we're talking about here with Philip. This kind of belief requires more than admiration. It requires revelation, faith, and following. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Here's the last companion I want you to look at. And that's Peter. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. I I told you we'd look a lot of places here this morning, but we've already looked at two of the three of the inner circle. Here's the third person in the inner circle. Who's the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. Did you know that every time there's a list of disciples in Scripture, you know whose name first? You'll either see the name Simon or Peter. And guess what? They're the same person. It's this guy. It's this guy. Matthew chapter 26, look at verse 33. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Even if all are made to stumble. Jesus has sat there and told them by what manner they must die. He's told them all this stuff. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And here's what's interesting. So many times we forget this. And so said all the other disciples. Peter makes a statement, and the rest of them say, Yeah, we're willing to die for you. The word stumble literally means that Peter would not fail Jesus in the worst of all scenarios. It means that if they come to get him, if they, he's willing to lay his life on the line. A cause, however, listen, a cause that he misunderstood even up to the end. You see, Jesus, a lot of people, even his closest disciples, when they looked at Jesus, they were not just looking at Jesus, which should be enough for any of us. You understand that, right? They were looking at the cause. What was the cause? that they were... So when he was talking about dying, he says it's about Jesus, it's all about you. But for many of them, and we read that, when you read between the lines in the gospel, it wasn't just Jesus, it's the cause which they were willing to die for. What's the cause? The cause was this, that Jesus would be this great messianic leader who would come and deliver them out from under the burdens of the Roman Empire. And all that was still at play. And basically Peter's saying, I'm all in for this. There was no denying that Peter admired Jesus and would die for him. He proved it. Look down in verse 51 the context of what we're getting ready to read is literally just as they were arresting Jesus. In verse 51, and suddenly one of those who was with Jesus, John tells us this is Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, now now, before I read the next, does it sound like Peter's willing to die for Jesus? Oh yeah. He's proving it right here. Okay, He's he's willing to die for the cause. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter (laughs) had intentions that Jesus would be the one who would deliver them. Let me just say this. Jesus did deliver them, but not in the way they thought. But Peter is sitting here and he's basically saying, okay, it's time to take up swords. And Jesus says, put it away. Verse 53, or do you not think that I can now pray, that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? You know how many a legion is? 6,000. He just said seven. How many is that? If you know math very well, 72,000 angels he could call. I was sharing this with a Wednesday night crowd. Do you know that in in one place in Scripture, I think it's 1 Kings 17 or somewhere around there, it basically says, in one night, one angel killed 185,000 men. What do you think 72,000 could do? Could do some damage, couldn't it? Jesus is basically saying, Peter, I don't need you to defend me. I I don't need you to put yourself out there. I got it all handled. (laughs) Peter, again, you're misunderstanding what we're all about here. Again, this passage really, uh, reveals Peter's misunderstanding of the cause of Jesus. This man, listen, was proud, courageous, and appeared to be self-sufficient, will now become a coward. Think about the next scene in Peter's life. Verse, I don't have time to read this. Verses 69 through 75 tells us that Peter will deny Jesus three times, just as Jesus said. Now, Here's what we need to understand. Here's what we can take from this. When we don't have the proper view of who Jesus is and the understanding of his purpose and mission, it makes cowards out of all of us. Think about it. Peter sitting there. At least Peter had the courage to follow where Jesus went. You know that he's been arrested. He's going from one unfair fair trial to the next. Jesus seems to be there in the proximity of all that's going on. He's standing around this campfire and all of a sudden three people accuse him of being a disciple of Jesus. Hey, he's with him. Even one of you know what one of the accusers was, it was a young girl. <laughs> a young girl was calling him out. I don't know him. Made him a coward. You know one thing, I think think we all love Peter. You know why? Because Peter makes the same mistakes we constantly make, doesn't he? Or didn't he? And we find ourselves there. So Peter's very likable. It makes us feel better about ourselves when we read about Peter. But let me tell you something that happened. Did you know that Peter eventually got it right? Did you know that that who Jesus was and what his causes were and what his mission was and what his purpose was all, all about? Peter totally embraced that. It happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in and dwelled him. Peter gets up, starts preaching. Acts chapter two. All of a sudden, people are coming to know Christ. All of a sudden, all these great things are happening. He's getting it. You go to First and Second Peter. Do you know that you read those two, two two epistles and you realize Peter really got it? And then in Second Peter chapter three, you may want to write this down. In second Peter chapter three verses seventeen and eighteen. Here's what Peter says: some of those last words. Be on guard. Lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Is this a man who could relate to what he just said? Listen to it again. Be on guard, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Your own strength doesn't get you anywhere. Peter came to realize that. He, he realized. He says this, however, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's later successes came from a proper understanding of who Jesus was and his mission and his purpose. Next, look on your outline. The famous last words of the criminal. Of the criminal, Turn to Luke chapter 23. Let's look at his story. As you turn, let me give you the context. Many of you know uh, the whole idea of the cross. Jesus is on the cross, and, and you basically have him hanging there with two other criminals. Okay? Uh, many people believe uh, that these criminals uh, were, were, some say they were thieves, some say that they were, but really most people believe they were treasonous. They were basically trying to t- uh, bring about revolts themselves, okay? Uh, in a different way, Jesus was leading one. So, so in Luke chapter 23, the scene is all three are there on the crosses. Look at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who hung with him, a possible zealot, many people believe, blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, now in, in his terms, here's what he would be saying. If you're the militant Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other thief, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you earned the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man, this Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what's interesting about this? This man obviously came on Jesus' terms. He obviously was an admire of what Jesus was all about, but he came, he became more than just an admirer that day. He he literally, according to what we're getting to read about Jesus' response, he had a spiritual awakening. Did, did he understand something his own disciples did not understand at this point? It is believed at this point he probably did because of what Jesus said in verse 43. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He understood who Jesus was and Jesus' innocence. He also seemed to understand his own guilt reaching out to Jesus' grace. The criminal was much more than an admirer. He obviously came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Next, we have the centurion. Turn to Mark chapter 5. This is the last place I'll have you turn. Mark chapter 5. The centurion. This, this, this is a very important person, I believe, in the whole story. Jesus is there on the cross. We know he was there for on the cross for six hours. The centurion uh, would have been a man, a Roman soldier, who would have been in charge of 100 soldiers. And he could have been assigned in the detail of arresting Jesus. He also could have been someone who overheard the proceedings of the unfair trials Jesus had. He could have been a part of all that. But there's one thing that we do know. We know that he oversaw the execution of Jesus. As I said, it will be an event that plays out six hours. Let's look at his story. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37. (laughs) And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Other translations tell us there was a great earthquake. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, this is how he summed him up. Truly or surely, this man was the Son of God. <clears throat> you see, he would have probably heard Jesus say this ways on the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Who is one of the them? It would have been him, the centurion. But in making this statement, truly or surely this man is the son of God. Listen, let me ask you a question. Is it enough for salvation? It is enough for admiration, but not enough for salvation. The father said, listen, the father said, said what he he said at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. Peter said it at the great confession of faith. But here's the catch. The demons themselves said it in the presence of Jesus. What the centurion said, the demons have said. The thief made the right confession, but so did the demons. You see, believing and saving, or excuse me, believing and saying is not enough. So here's the application. Admiration for Jesus is not enough for salvation. The admirer of Jesus must become a follower of Jesus. However, many admirers have their own assumptions and agendas concerning him. And here's what it sounds like. As long as Jesus meets their expectations, as long as Jesus is answering their prayers the way they desire, as long as Jesus does not ask them to do something outside of their comforts, They'll admire him through all that, but will they believe him through those things? See, salvation comes to those who accept Jesus on his terms. Have you ever accepted him on, Have you accepted him on your terms or his? Can I tell you what some of the terms look like? Look at Matthew chapter 16. Look there on your outline. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Y'all, this is more than admiration. It's even more than belief. It's a willing to step out. I want you to look on the back of your outline there. There's something that I placed there, and it's here on the screen if you don't have it on your outline, but let me just say this. I try to give you this at least once or twice a year. This is the one of the best tools I've ever seen. For someone in which they can see themselves in the process of being saved. You see, here's what I'm convinced of. So many people have started the process, but they haven't finished. They haven't come to God on, through Jesus on, on the terms that God has set forward. And so look here. How do we go from being an admirer to a follower? Here, here's the process. You have the awareness of a supreme being. You have the initial awareness of the gospel. You have the awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel. You begin the grasp, the grasp of the implications of the gospel. And then you have a positive attitude toward the gospel. And, and then from there, you realize there's a, there's a personal problem. There's something. It's revealed something to you. So there's a recognition. It starts with confession. Then there's a whole idea that I'm a sinner. And then there may even be belief. But let me tell you this. You still haven't crossed over from being an admirer to a follower. Think about how far you can go in this process. Can I just tell you there's a lot of people out there professing Christ in which this is where it stops? It's got to be more than that. you got to come on his terms. Here it is right here. This, This puts it into motion. A decision to act. Confession. Repentance. There's a faith in Jesus. There's a profession. There's lordship. This begins. This is is decision to act. Now, this does not mean that perfection comes to my life. Anybody sitting here perfected? If you are, you do realize you're dead and already gone. You just happen to be hanging out here. I don't know why you would, but (laughs) it doesn't happen in this body. But there's the process of moving. When those things take place, that is salvation. That, that moves you from an admirer to a follower. And then there's a whole idea you become a new creation. You see things differently. There's a perspective change. There's different things that you uh, sense. And, there, and the whole reason why is because the Holy Spirit indwells you. From that, changes occur. Listen, we don't work towards salvation. We work from salvation. We, we don't work towards it we, we're actually on the other side we're operating in salvation and therefore there are works that come things do change behaviors attitudes perspectives change and then we realize the importance of the word of God in prayer the role of the church in our life sharing our story and serving those things come later You see, so many people, and I'm asking you here, sitting here this morning. If you came in here today, and you've seen yourself just as an admirer, you basically have come to God on your own terms. Certain expectations you had, hey, what's in it for me, and all that, and it just stops right there. You're not a follower. You don't know Him as He intends you to know Him. There's got to be a decision to act on those things. Have you ever acted on those things? Have you come to Him? That's what we're inviting you to do here today. Would just stand to your feet, Father. We just come to you right now, and Lord, I know uh, in a room this size with this many people that, Father, there's got there's probably those that are uh, they are kind of unsure where they are. Maybe they came in here this morning thinking one way, but through your word, through just sharing what you're all about, what your terms are, they've realized that they've just been an admirer. They're not truly a follower. Father, I pray today will be the day for their salvation, that today will be the day that they move from the admirer to follower. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the day that you touched my own life as an eight-year-old boy. Lord, I know I look back on that time, and I know without a shadow of a doubt That was the time I gave my life to you. I always admired you. I heard of your stories. I I read the stories. But something happened at that day when I was eight years old. Which I gave my life to you. Lord, I've never doubted that from that point on. But Lord, I do know that I wasn't perfect. But I had a heart to serve you. A heart to love you. I wasn't always there because I messed up so many times. But there was always the desire, the want to. All because I know the Spirit indwells in me. All because I came to a point where I confessed you as my Lord. I turned from my sin and I turned to you. I placed my faith in you. Father, if there's someone here today who's never done that, I pray today will be the day they give their life to you. Lord, have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Myself and to